0: Welcome to the show, Course Correction, setting your life's direction and your GPS for success. Leadership, management, marketing, and strategy that works. And now, here's your host, Dr. Jeff Darville. Welcome to the first episode of the Course Correction Podcast on Endgame Leadership. I'm your host, Dr. Jeffrey Darville, and with me today is John Hardy. John is an author and consultant, advisor and strategist. His career included managing his real estate development company, which specialized in building carriage homes in Canada, as well as a consumer foods company. His accounting background helped him develop flow or zero-based auditing, which helped turn around companies. As an auditor with Deloitte & Touche, He audited foreign-owned subsidiaries in Hungary and worked out of London. Today, we're going to dive right into our first episode. As you will notice, this is more of a conversation than an interview. John has some unique ideas on business and life that I want to explore with him. And our intention is to extend his theory and my scholarship and leadership into new and exciting areas.
1: Okay, so now we're talking about the distinction between, let's say, what I refer to as, let's say, the Platonic... A spiritual perspective that reality, like the cave analogy, the reality that we perceive is really a reflection of a deeper reality, and that it is only of interest to us as if we can see through to the correspondence that it represents.
0: Yeah, a, so like the ideal versus the real, the shadows on the wall versus the. Precisely, the forms. The forms. The form, exactly. Yes.
1: Plato's forms versus, let's say the aristotelian where we're looking at the world this is what we have to come from and then everything relates back to or at least our version of the aristotelian probably that was the neo aristotelian you could call it which is that the material is what counts and we have to keep going and returning back to the material for relevance right. and so mm-hmm. the the question we're also always asking is you know what's the how does it affect our lives uh, will it make money etc cetera, etc cetera. and that yeah, practical consideration and in the, in the two orientations actually ultimately determine motivation, because one, for an example, when we we're talking about relationship, is when you're looking at it from the deep, deeper spiritual point of view, relationship is really a recognition of the connection that pre-exists. And so the relationships we're talking about are really uh, kind of subsets of much bigger connections that are existing as everything is connected. And because it is connecting everything, relationship is the prevailing condition. Everything is in relationship. Right. When you look at the, the materialistic perspective, things are not in relationship until they are. Right? It's sort of transactional. There's two discrete objects. Until they overtly interact in a materially visible way, they are not related. Well, then that sort of, leads you to the problem that you can imagine that in a trend in a world like ours, which is much more on a visible level, transactional than it's relational, then there will be a tendency towards a much more transactional approach than there will be a relationship approach. And so that the two will completely diverge.
0: Yeah. Yeah. In leadership theory, we have this idea of like transactional leadership, which I would equate more to management. You do this mm-hmm. and you get that. It's an exchange theory. Quid pro quo. Quid pro quo. Exactly. And then we have like, it's contrasted with typically transformational leadership, which yes. is that deeper, deeper level of spiritual, visionary leadership and uh you know at times charismatic and there's combinations of these leadership theories that get melded together and amalgamated but the idea is essentially or some version of what i just consider under the category the umbrella category of positive leadership it's supposed to be the the better versions of leadership and there's something appealing about that and i you can use that to understand what it is that we want usually as followers or as members of a group or as leaders in a group what we want for the group is typically um positive change, transformation, higher levels of moral uh, awareness and growth, personal development, these types of things, which tend to come from the transformational view. So you're right that, that when we reduce life to the material, um, the uh, uh, even empirical, the scientific approach to life and, and you know, your value is determined by your productivity alone,
1: Okay, precisely. Now, if we're looking at personal growth, one thing, just but I was just thinking about, Jeff. We're looking at personal growth, then, if the individual has this drive towards personal growth and therefore um, to a realization, let's just say, of their higher self, so it's self actualization that they're, let's just say, if we use that terminology and that each individual is seeking to actualize. Okay. I'm thinking, though, and what what comes to mind is I was speaking with a turnaround guy uh, from the states, and he was he was talking about the uh, we were talking about leadership, and he said that during Vietnam they uh, did a study of what it was that motivated men to follow their lieutenants into battle. You know, in these pretty you know heinous situations, and overwhelmingly the. Uh, Dominant factor had to do with their belief that the left, the individual, the private's belief that the lieutenant cared about him personally. And I was thinking then that if we look at it from that point of view, then we're really talking about, in a sense, love. You know, it'll really love the caring of the other. placing the other above
0: oneself yes the self-giving nature of love it's it's inherent in what love is you must sacrifice so
1: so then if we if because even when we're talking about self-actualization and i think about the people who talk about that the ones that i know and the people who profess themselves to be spiritual right
0: right very often
1: it's yeah often very often it's a kind of you know i don't know almost a spiritual narcissism. It's kind of a magnified narcissism, but only now it's taken, it's like, you know, supercharged. It's taken beyond the physical to the spiritual plane.
0: Right. And that, yeah, I was listening to a a podcast recently and and, uh, they were talking about status. Essentially, right. people sometimes people will say, "Well, I'm not interested in money, but I'm but I'm competing on status." Is what they're what is in the parentheses yeah. implicitly stated, and uh, and that's as dangerous. Prestige and status are as dangerous as money, honestly, if not more so. Oh, totally. totally. So the spiritual narcissism that you're describing as a form of prestige. Look at me, I've got it all figured out, or something like that. You know.
1: On, actually, on a higher level, like if we were to talk about a progression exactly, like the most basic one is money, but money has to have a context. Why money? Because if the money, you couldn't do anything with it, n- nobody knew Nobody knew that you had money, it wouldn't have much value to you. So it really underneath always translates back to status. And interestingly enough, and, and, I, and I agree with your point, the status is the key. Even, even when it comes down to, let's say, the spiritual narcissism is – and I've been in groups when we have this experience, you know, the DMT and, you know, get all getting blasted and we're all exper—you know, talking about how we all saw, see, saw God. And then afterwards, I thought to myself, is we're, these are competing war stories of who is more spiritual <laughs> and who had the more intense experience. And it's just so innate that right. it, it's just narcissism, only now it's just even worse because it's narcissism among people who imagine they're no longer narcissistic. So that means that there is no internal break on their own narcissism. They are free to just go wild. Right. You know, an right. example of this is past lives, right? How you yeah. know everybody in past life was always an emperor or a goddess <laughs> or something like this,
0: you know? Right. right. Well, statistically speaking, well, if the billion people or so that have lived, you're, fired <laughs> exactly. out, you're more than likely going to be a dead, you know, you probably were an infant that died in childbirth or, uh, uh, you know, or didn't make it past uh, 20 years old. And, uh, oh, yeah. Or an, maybe you were yeah. just
1: a, you know, just a very bad
0: criminal or something like that. <laughs> like just too. a low level sure. asshole, you know, right. <laughs> that's, <laughs> that's all you right. were. Yeah. <laughs> right. But the amplification of your experience, is it tied to who had the the pineal gland or whatever that gland is, the spiritual gland that you experienced this, were it's you amped the, up a little bit more?
1: Yes. The, it's, no, it's not pituitary. It's the pineal. That's correct. Pineal. I always yeah.
0: confuse those. But is that like the pineal. thing, you know, that you're more sensitive to the spiritual world? So you're a better, I hate, I, I really, this idea, like, I think all human beings are religious in some context and you're not more religious. Some, you're not, if you're not gifted with a greater sense of the God within you or some namaste kind of thing, like you are the, you know, you're, you're, you're closer to Buddha. This it's a really, it, it is, it's a spiritual narcissism, narcissism and it's an odd thing because it, in, it induces people and encourages them incentivizes them to amplify their own experience beyond what they actually experience, So the subjective loop is reinforced with greater subjectivity. So you, you continually tell yourself a story about whatever your experience was or however great you are or whatever, you know, and you know, illumination you've had. Well,
1: and, and now you, you know, see when you turn this to, um, the, you know, the media and the uh, social media, Facebook, Twitter, etc., right. And you get this constant, uh, reification of bias right in all individual you can imagine that yeah exactly we're reaching levels of narcissism which were you know heretofore never even dreamed of by anybody but the you know the the king of
0: spain sure yeah louis 14th the sun king everyone bows before him great you know yeah those people experienced things the emperors and and so forth but, but most people didn't have the delusion of grandeur that they did um and yet now with Facebook and your echo chamber, you can create and, and you're only posting the greatest version of yourself. You've edited and spliced and cut together the life that you want everyone to be jealous of. And you can post on your social media. And uh, I, I guess you've convinced yourself that your life is perfect. Even though you know that it isn't. You're a fraud. You look at yourself in the mirror and you realize your flaws. You know that you're frustrated with your life. And yet you feel like you can present to other people by playing the game, image management, yeah. That are great. <laughs> you and, got it all. And,
1: and and so and then what then is exactly the result is even the capacity for relationship uh, diminishes, right? And so um I mean I mean I have this I've got a, a 18-year-old girl Juliet, I've got a um, 16-year-old boy, well soon to be both of them. Um, not soon to be boy but so <laughs> soon to be 16 uh, Johnny and, you know, one is right-wing, the other one's left-wing. And um, essentially, when we have is, a conversation... Which is right-wing
0: and which is left, your son or daughter? Well, oh, <laughs> my, my
1: daughter... My, well, yeah, no, my daughter's uh, left-wing.
0: Left
1: yeah. um, Not... Super left wing, but sort of that's the dominant thing sure. here in Canada, right? That's typical. Yeah. It's a default, right?
0: I just want to confirm my 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 predictions yeah. would have been correct. And if not, yeah. then I, I don't want to assume anything. No, <laughs> no,
1: exactly. That's right. Otherwise, you know, you'll be politically incorrect and all that type of stuff. But let's just say, yeah, it's what you would presume. She's uh left and then you know Johnny's right. And why is he right? Well, because it's um, you know, I want to be a man and you know, they're taking away our manhood. And for instance, he was the, the debate between them was that uh, they're living in the same place they live with. My mom were divorced, and their rooms are adjoined, and so when Juliet's light is on, then Johnny cannot sleep. And Johnny needs his sleep because he's only six foot zero now. He needs to be six foot two, and why? Because that's a threshold which he understands, according to excellent unimpeachable information on the Internet, is the minimum criteria to get women. <laughs> so he has to reach six foot two. or And then I said, but well, what about Hollywood? There's lots of people below six foot two. Well, they're talented and they have money. So you're saying that if you can't be talented and you can't have money, but at least be six foot two because then basically you're secure. And he goes, yes. I, but he hey, said, hey,
0: but, "At least he's got a. At least he's got a plan." You know. I mean, no. <laughs> the
1: thing is, there's brilliant but, logic, and, and then he, of right. course he Tom, said, "Tom, Tom Cruise
0: was was talented and assured, and and we could go down the line with those other um, well, under six foot two people that made it." Uh, these are but, the these are the but, exceptions uh, that make the rule argument. <laughs> sure, absolutely, yeah, yeah, it's fair, I, mean, I think you could you can you can develop a model around that. But I was thinking at six foot two, the number that stuck in my head was um, playing tennis. Roger Federer is six two, Rafael Nadal six two, Djokovic is six three. Much taller than that, you can have a great serve, but you're not going to win much. M- much shorter than that, and you lose some of the advantages of height. So six two seems to be a sweet spot. I think Pete Sampras was about six two. Seems to be a sweet spot. Andre Agassi made it up, and you can look at other um, players and he's about five ten. Yeah, but but, let, but let's two. just say it, it is exactly. a good height. If <laughs>
1: so if you look at it, it's not a completely crazy number. Okay, your <laughs> two.
0: But, but then I said, but, but to will yourself to grow there, you have to really try hard. You know, stretch oh, your legs. No, exactly. Out
1: and, well, and then now he needs to do push-ups because he's only at four. He needs to. If he, if he knew that I'm saying this public, he'll go crazy. But anyways, <laughs> no, he's only at but, four
0: now, and us right. to get but to. Probably. You, you talked about the danger of lifting and and weight. <laughs> I get these things out there, and I don't use these enough. But I just feel like it makes. I need them sometimes because I I just feel a little like you know, flabby or soft. And I'm like, I got to try and do something with these. So I'll do like, you know, over the arm raises or some version of butterfly. Um, And then of course, just watching you, you know, when your rotator cuff does go, then you can, you know, (laughs) stop exercising. That's it. Yeah. uh, There's enough other things to do. I try and, you know, my, my goal is to play hard and not get hurt until I do.
1: Yeah. But but what I was, what I was thinking about is I listened to these, you know, debates between them. And then the other one, the other, his other issue was uh, the fact that You know, Julia's getting 100% uh, in drama, and she's got a 97%. She's got a great average, and Johnny's not where where he could be. Um, She's about to go off to university. She's been a great student. In the meantime, he's been sort of doing as little as possible. But he then has to negate basically her success. But then his argument is that you you should only spend four hours on drama. Anything more than that is excessive. And as, I, and as I was listening to this, I said, you know, you really need to create a blog, which is just like Jordan Peterson has his 10 rules. Well, you can have your 12 rules or whatever. He said, 12, okay, 12 rules. And I said, right. yours are going to be far more entertaining than his and probably more re-
0: or at least as relevant. And just. You know, if, carry on. If, and who knows? If nothing else. He's he's refining his ideas in the in the marketplace of ideas. He can try his hand at writing, and you know, maybe he'll get better at writing in the in the process by encouraging. Well,
1: actually, yeah, th- th- that's a good point because in the, in in articulating these inane positions and trying to defend them, you actually do develop a very good vocabulary. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> and that's yeah. that's true in his case. Yeah. And and so but but as you know, as I but as I watch the conversation, what you can just see is Absolutely trapped in a reality that is constantly being reinforced on the internet with a kind of information which is people who are you know basically false logic, full of non sequiturs, just blathering on with a stream of logic that always comes goes to the same place. And as this becomes you know reified, they become. It is almost impossible for him at this moment in time, hopefully this will change, to actually engage, actually hear what, let's say, his sister's saying. But she's not much better, but a little bit better, but, you know, more or less the same. They do not, can't even imagine the other person's position.
0: Right, yeah, and this is kind of communication theory in many ways, the frame of reference and your noise and bias interferes with your ability to listen and listening is such a key skill to communication that we under emphasize. We talk about writing, talking, uh, speaking and, and uh, um, other form, maybe, you know, reading or comprehension or stuff like that academically, but listening (laughs) is so important. And, And you're right that if you get so ingrained and entrenched in your tribal ideas, you lose the ability to communicate with somebody else. Now I think that testing your beliefs against reality is that material world is relevant. So whether it's the deductive method of Plato or the inductive method of Aristotle, so it's the opposite. Yeah, excuse me. The inductive method of yeah. Plato, from general to specific, yeah. or the deductive method of, of Aristotle, from specifics to generalizations. Yes. Um, in both cases you have to deal with the specifics, right? Where Aristotle is going to the granular, he's looking at the material world and the animals and dividing them up into kingdoms and coming up with his, his uh, hierarchy of uh, genus and species or whatnot. And Plato takes these grand ideas and then tries to apply that to life. I think that your books, I wanted to kind of get into some of your ideas in, in, a, re- in a couple chapters in one of your books just to kind of talk to us because one of the things that we've touched on here is the idea of theory versus practice, if you will um so you talked about uh this mm-hmm. kind of linear model versus the relational model so you associated that with syllogistic thinking so a syllogism kind of from premise to conclusion right Prec- logical, precisely yeah and the, you, I, the, you, you I, would I, say that's imposed on our natural process so we have a natural process gestalt or otherwise we have a similar we have I, a, exactly the a, a natural way of living and we impose on it logic at some level precisely now i'm
1: taking of course then i'm my position is assuming the platonic or inductive standpoint because okay i'm I'm saying that our natural thing is relation and i'd say and i would argue it from this perspective what is the thing that we need the most as individuals i would argue plain and simple is love we can live without everything else we can't live without love we just dry up. You know, you take a look a, a child if they are not loved, if there's failure to thrive, they will die. You know, just hugged, etc., you know, whatever when they're newborns. So yeah. it's just an objective fact.
0: Right, right. Yes, yeah. stunted right. relational, social, emotional intelligence that's created by those situations is damaging. So the lack of love at a child at a young age has massive ramifications for the rest of that's your life. That's right, I
1: mean. because you'll be forever Sorry. compensating. You creates a skew right. which you're trying to it creates a, a basically a bend and you're always trying to basically compensate for that bend. And then of course great things can happen out of that because probably you could argue that all of us are skewed, and that skew the correction of that skew might be the very purpose of our lives. Maybe that's an you know an argument.
0: Fair that, enough. That, that's, uh, right that's why and I would here. say that the the truth, you know it's it's absolutely true that that can happen. Um, I just think statistically speaking, it's more likely that the vast majority 60, I don't, I always like throwing out random statistics because 86.5% of all statistics are made up on the spot. (laughs) So I try and use my statistical thinking to say, okay, right. Of the hundred children who are deprived of love, how many are going to, uh, be, are going to use that as energy and fuel to, to create greatness one, two, three, four, maybe five. So you're talking a 95% failure rate. If you have a failure, but just, okay. So, so maybe, maybe you have 15, 20 who are, um, uh, become contributing citizens in the global community or something like that. So you could say 80% are suffering as a result of that. And we're talking the, the selection criteria were, Children that were deprived of love significantly at a young age, up until mm-hmm. you know, at a, at some point in their life, and continually looking to fill that hole. That's, I mean, that, that that would be that would be my hypothesis. My null hypothesis would be eighty uh, percent are are yeah. Oh, yeah, I mean, it, and even the
1: ones who do achieve, they're still suffering. I mean, maybe Absolutely. they're productive. But they can—they—they almost invariably uh, stay uh, very unhappy. I mean, well, you know, you look at say someone like David Letterman. I was just watching. So there was some um, on CNN. They were talking about these—the late night and the history of late night. And they were talking about how David Letterman, despite being unbelievably successful, the moment he would experience a reversal, everything would go to hell in his mind, and that he he, all confidence would just disappear, and that he would be so anxious, and that means the whole time instead of enjoying that experience, he's dreading failure rather than um, enjoying success Now that's embedded in him he's not choosing to be that way that that's uh, just a compensation so yes it was successful compensation externally but internally right. not really because he was suffering most of the
0: time right I mean that's a, like a I would put that as a neurotic personality traits that oh, sure. are, um very that tortured soul whether you're a comedian, like Letterman was essentially a comedian, uh, a host, yeah. but he was, uh, he was funny. And at his, at his peak, he was, he was extremely funny. And, and I've seen his interview shows to the, the, um, on Netflix yeah. and whatnot. And he does a great job and I, I always enjoyed him, but you're right. That there's a tortured soul. I think all actors, performers mm-hmm. at some point. Um, and I think even athletes can face the, the fear of failure. I, I remember playing basketball in, in high school. We were in a, a competition in upstate new york and it was the the end of the year tournament and i we lost the final game and the the players in the bus were looking forward to what they were doing that weekend and i was mad and i just looked at them and i said you know everyone likes to win champions hate to lose
1: mm-hmm.
0: and i was mad at them <laughs> for not caring more <laughs> but but eh, whatever i mean it, no but but and it, i mean because it's a level of commitment and right? but i was thinking let's say
1: getting back to love one of the things that struck me about love was that people, when they look for a reason to love, there's no reason to love, that reason does not lead you, there's no syllogistic process that leads you to love. And therefore, my, my, my argument to myself was that if that's the case, and if love is the primer, primary driver, then this is something that must pre-exist, which is to say the spiritual pre-exists the physical. And if that's the case, then that then now turns everything upside down. And, and ultimately, then the goal is love. And if the goal is love, then that supersedes productivity, everything else.
0: Right. Yeah. I mean, so I, I think that, as you say, the spiritual pre the physical. And what leads you to love? What drives not, not only the need to love, the need to be loved, but also Precisely. the need to love yourself, right? Yep. Because you have to give... In order to, to get and and it takes faith, um, not necessarily in a religious sense, but but in any sense of the word, like you a have trust. to trust. Trust, yeah, exactly. You you become yeah. vulnerable, and you allow intimacy with another person. Precisely. And Brenny Brown talks about vulnerability a lot in her talks on TED Talks and, and her her books that I've read, uh, Dare to Lead, and other things. And it's it's an attractive feature of her of her training program and her books, it's a very difficult thing to do in a corporate setting. And it's it's almost exposing yourself to weakness, which would be taken advantage of by somebody else, but in your personal life, it's absolutely necessary. And this is a difficult balance. I think that you, I would be very careful about encouraging my coworkers to be too vulnerable with me one, because you're exposed to their, their junk, their, their baggage. And, and um, that. It, it's necessary you want to have good relationship with your coworkers, but if you're spending too much time in therapy sessions, <laughs> that can be a that can be a drag on on the other things you'd like to be doing. And yet you need to have some moments where you can handle that stuff. But that person's responsible for their own support systems outside of their workplace. And if they're getting only their meaning, if they're only getting their meaning from their workplace, then they also need their love from their workplace. And that's a dangerous position to be in. So there's a lot of lot of intertwined Co-variables that are at work there when we talk about love in a personal level, as well as relationships overall.
1: It's interesting because in the piece that you sent me about, uh, you know, Machiavellian King James, um, you talk about vulnerability and how vulnerability is, uh, you know, let's say, you know, if you, you know, in the progression we we're talking about, the lack of agility creates vulnerability. Vulnerability is a bad thing. Uh, in that sense, at the same time. When we're looking at vulnerability within the context of an individual personal relationship, it's a good thing. But I think I think it's two different senses of vulnerability. It is, and and I think too that when we're loving, the thing that struck me about people who are loving is when you when you take a look at really tough individuals, let's say male individuals, like uh, like you know a really the most, let's say, hard contact sport individuals, very tough individuals, commandos. Or, or,
0: co- or who? Um, David Naganyu or uh, Conor McGregor, whoever these guys are, maybe something.
1: Well, like. I wouldn't call the, no, they're, they're not quite them because they're almost like animals, those guys, because, uh, you know, no, I wouldn't choose them. But I'm talking <laughs> players, about- players, what are we talking
0: about here? <laughs> yeah,
1: I'm talking about more, um, I would say, like a commando. Okay. Um, right? An extreme sports guy or, 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 you know, people who, you know, really overcome fear on a regular basis. Right. Right. I would say that you generally find that they would be very open hearted, that they would be sensitive to others. Um, and they wouldn't be particularly, uh, reticent about, uh, hiding their care for another oh. and at the same time that kind of a, so they're not being weak so an example would be let's say in, in, let's say in the Russian culture you see them that you know between men crying or the Hungarian okay. culture Eastern European culture for a man to cry now if it's about himself that's a problem but if a man is crying because of caring about something, or someone else, then that is, yeah, it is love, but it's a higher kind of love because it's the love of the other. And I think that we've become so unbelievably narcissistic as a culture here in North America that we think of, you know, let's say people just unloading about themselves. Uh, I mean, is it really necessary? Like you can imagine, let's say, a bunch of you know British commandos with stiff upper lip and all that. Sure. Here are these guys, You know, SAS. Here they are together, and they're you know together. Now, I don't think it would be sort of done to, you know, talk about your fears and this and that. You, But at the same time, if, let's say, one lost a brother or something like that, and he was hurting from it, I don't think that they would feel the need to hide it from their brothers. You know, they're they're they're, they're, uh, they're comrades.
0: Yeah, I mean, I do think that there are maybe in a culture that some of the self-medication with alcohol can mask some of that. Right? If you're drunk, you're you know, um, and if, you know, so if you're intoxicated or inebriated, it it can dull some of your senses and emphasize others, and you're not who you were. If you if you're upset, crying or upset. You, you it's the alcohol talking. It's, it's not me at some level. So you can become more open. You can and disassociate. disassociate yeah, yeah. Yeah. Inhibitions go down. So I think sometimes in the military and in other settings, um, the self-medication with alcohol potentially seems to be the the, 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 the drug of choice, um, for, for many could be a way of getting around think, that, but you're right. I agree. You know,
1: another topic, which is interesting and that you just touched on is, you know, that uh, for instance, I remember that phrase, uh, and I've never been able to quite get my mind around it is you have to love yourself before you can love another. And I was thinking to myself, most people <laughs> get stuck on the loving themselves part and there's not enough energy left <laughs> to, to love someone else. I don't know if they're going about it the right way with that approach. Like telling a narcissist that is not necessarily <laughs>
0: the best way to do, you know, to improve their condition. Fair enough. Fair enough. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's almost uh, that 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 phraseology and the thinking that you're describing is inherent in the golden rule, right? Um, do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Assumes that you do well to yourself. That I'm doing well to myself, and I would expect, you know, I'm, I'm I would do unto you the way I would want you to do to me because I would do to me pretty well. Um,
1: well, I, isn't that an inversion of what was actually said in that golden rule? Because isn't I was reading the Bible somewhere, someplace place where it said. Do not do unto another what you would not do unto yourself.
0: Yeah, that, that I think right? the, that spin on it or that different phrasing is is a mirror in, um, and it's not. It's there's a the Code of Hammurabi or some version of. That is, and we could look this up and, and yeah. you know, if there's, if there's, uh, you know, like I'll research, we could cite things and, and further back it up yeah. when it's written down and show notes and whatnot. But yeah, that idea, I believe shows up in the Code of Hammurabi or something similar to that. So even if, as Jesus phrased it, he did it in his way and the concept or the idea preexisted his life, that it was, it, there was some idea in the Middle Eastern culture that he was able to draw from and and crystallize it in a certain way. But I I, yeah. I think that's true. I think though there is, and I'm not sure.
1: I can I'm, I'm not. It's just intuitive at this point. I couldn't fully articulate it, but I think there's a distinction between those two statements.
0: There absolutely is. Yeah. Right? Don't do to, don't do to somebody else what you wouldn't have them do to you is a protective mechanism. Where do unto others what you would have them do to you is a intentional proactive. Positive, forward-looking stance, right? I'm going to right. do to you yeah. something nice, because no, that's what precisely. I would want you to do for me. No,
1: exactly. And I was thinking that with respect mm-hmm. to um, the Christian one, it is the uh, against wrath, because I'm just thinking. I mean, if you if you take a look at narcissism, you know, or pride, how does it express itself? Invariably, is, I think basically through wrath. Whether it be jealousy, envy, whatever, it ultimately leads to wrath.
0: That's
1: a, right? Yeah, that's a, it's a right, the acting out, the acting out of the right, judgment. crimes of passion.
0: Certainly, I mean right. that exactly. tends to be a big motivator. So there's an so, element because, of that there that's interesting. That, that exactly. the violation so, you, of this trust, this the love relationship, by, by violating that trust, right? It's wrath. Wrath, absolutely. And now, and what
1: by doing this, it is to because ultimately, I think, you know, in life, the challenge is wrath, is that we go to wrath. I mean, you know, road rage is an example of what, I mean, we go to wrath so fast. And when we examine wrath, it's almost invariably narcissistic rage. And that, that the check on that is to actually look at love as a kind of circuit breaker. And so that when we use, let's say, to me, true Christianity is yet not I, but through Christ in me. And what that invariably involves is love, is in order to do that, you have to activate love within yourself. And that then has to become the alpha from where the source from where you are acting. So if you do that, let's just say you're in wrath and you go to that place, you cannot act on your wrath. You literally cannot. I mean, it just, you, you'd be going against yourself.
0: Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there is some, uh, something very valuable and important about Having an external source of energy, power, love that is infused in you. If you only draw from your own personal resources, you you'll get to a limit. The couple run dry eventually. So you need precisely. to draw from something outside of yourself, and that's where the spirit and the flesh. Uh, the spirit is you know the flesh is weak, but the spirit um, is strong. I guess I'm trying to think of yes, about it. no, right.
1: no, no, precisely. Like yeah. and that that's where. Oh, hold on. I'm just going to uh, just get a. Plug
0: in. The spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. I think was the. the
1: yeah, the spirit yeah. is willing, but the flesh is weak, and and that that, but they, they, And I think this is the huge danger with, let's say, the atheistic perspective. And it's interesting. Rudolf Steiner actually described atheism as as a psychological sickness, mm. um, and it really defines our times. And the problem with that perspective is, it's just like when you look at you know Camus, you know the uh, the what do you call it. Uh, the outsider. I mean, the, the, the morality of the individual, if you take away God, uh, it becomes very, very difficult to, to, to come up with some kind of impetus towards, you know, leading us to, to priorize the group or the other individual above ourselves. I mean, it just seems arbitrary to do that if if you don't believe in something more than yourself,
0: right? Yes. Tell me more about the idea of prioritizing the group above yourself.
1: Well, you know, if you when you look at communism, that was, you know, I think it was a reaction also to collectivism or communism, which said that you know we'll take it's it's the it's the group, the state, but prior to that, it was the nation. So if we look at, you know, communism was the latest version because it was the, you know, for the good of the cause, placing the state above. Then you have Anne Rand who's reacting to that. Right. Saying me, 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 me. No, you know, that's nonsense. It's it's the, the genius individual who has to thrive because that will further humanity. Okay, wonderful. So, of course, we're all geniuses because who wants to be the, the loser in that game? So everybody declares themselves a genius. And, you know, the other ones, well, you know what? For the good of humanity, we'll have to get rid of them because, you know, they're just taking up space. So, but when you when you go further back in time, then you look at the nation state. And what was the whole base of the nation state? Giving yourself up to the nation. And when you take a look at the nation state, well, the nation state was a construct. Because really, we started off with regions. Sure. Right? And so you had a bunch of people. And then within the regions, you had families, you had maybe regions, you had, let's say, a group, you had an ethnic group, a tribe, something. Right. But once it was somehow brought to the level of a nation, now you had introduced basically some artificial construct, right, an ism, right? So you would introduce nationalism, then there's communism, then there's socialism, but it's always this subordinating the individual. But then, of course, the problem is, well, subordinating them to what and why? Because then why do we care about the damn species? Because really, if the whole human race disappears but the earth continues, is that so bad? I mean, from that point of view, you know what I'm saying? If we right. want to keep arguing further.
0: Right. Yeah. Take it ultimately,
1: to a in a way, what it is, it's a strong straw man. It's a null solution set. That it's an argument that if you take it far enough, you realize it just is not valid. It just has no grab and it cannot be a motivation. And he can certainly not drive troops to go into battle. God knows.
0: Well, yeah. So, what did drive the troops of communist Russia and uh, I suppose China to some degree and others? Actually, comradeship. Yeah. For their for their fellow men. I mean, yeah, the same I, think thing I think initially. I think initially
1: it's ideology. Like for instance, even with the Nazis, it was for the Reich and etc. Right. But I think by the time you know they're in the middle of Stalingrad in the winter and it's the second winter in Stalingrad, I think that the only thing that's sustaining them is caring for their comrades. Which is, ironically, from the most inhuman impulse, the Nazi, we actually get the most human, which is basic comradeship.
0: Mm. Yeah, yeah. So love
1: supersedes even
0: there. Right, right. Yeah, yeah, I just watched Band of Brothers not too long ago with a recommendation of my friend who watches it once a year at least. But uh, the end scenes when the German Nazi troops have given up and, and, uh, surrendered to the American and allied forces, um, through Germany and then into Austria Mm -hmm. at times and, and just, you know, throughout the movie, and this has been told many times, but the idea that, that they're, they're human beings doing terrible things, maybe not all of them Most certainly, most of them weren't aware of all the terrible things that were being done, or the ones that were aware were only aware of a aware of a small fraction of it. And yet, they these these soldiers, these men, still cared for their brothers. They weren't monsters, which is the scariest part of that whole story, in my mind.
1: Oh yeah, or or the the fellow who was head of um, who ran uh, Auschwitz uh, was a loving father. To his children and you see the pictures of the children and they're playing and the dog and and I mean he's you know he's not putting it on he's loving I, I think um, himmler was loving to his children and he was absolute butcher
0: yeah I think that, that, that compartmentalization was, and bifurcation it, of your of your soul your psyche is very uh, disturbing and yet corporate people can do this all the time right a CEO could say, you know, totally. I'm willing to sacrifice people's lives if it means pollution for our company and reducing cost savings, and we'll set up a a fund to potentially pay off uh, lawsuits in the future. And while we're debate, while we're um, you know using our lawyers to delay the lawsuits, that same fund will be making money in the stock market, which will more than compensate and pay for the eventual um, you know uh, payments to the the individuals, and and then they go home and and uh, kiss their wife and their kids good night.
1: Exactly. Exactly. And I was thinking that's the most human thing. And in fact, that's quintessentially, I wouldn't call it human, but lower human. Certainly no animal could be capable of that kind of logic. And and I think there's where that is where the linear, that's exactly the example of, and maybe we should, you know, come close to concluding because it's about four. Um, sure. is that you know, returning back to what allows that bifurcation as you describe, it it is what I describe as that linear paradigm. It is the it is the syllogistic reasoning. It is really things moving from a false premise, and the false premise is separateness itself. And everything is tied back to that false premise. And that's what, what, what ultimately the big lie is. Underneath all the big lies, the thing is, the biggest lie is separateness. And interestingly enough, it's connected to the original sin, which is the... Concept of us being separate from God. I mean, in the case of the Bible.
0: I love it. Um, Which is the source of pride. Would you say the big truth is connectedness?
1: Absolutely. Is that you and I are one. And it is in seeking to, it's starting from that premise that we will find it. But we have to have the inclination the suspension, it's almost like what we have to have is the suspension of the belief that we're separate to allow for the possibility that we are connected. And then the very fact that we are connected will, will essentially uh, manifest. But if we maintain the separateness, no, we basically preclude it from ever happening because I'm trying to get you before you get me. Right. Or in our, you know, in our interaction, as we were talking about working together, it's about, well, am I making a good deal here? And if each one of us is thinking, am I making a good deal here? Then, you know, at best in the short term, it's transaction. It can only go so far.
0: Right. Yes. Yeah. And, and I fully agree with you. And, and I think that it's in, in any relationship, it's sometimes necessary to check in. With that transactional side of things, um, even with your wife at times, just to make sure that yeah. things are okay. You know, I'm helping out around the house. I'm doing some of the chores, or I'm I'm willing to give you the love that you want in the way that you want it. Whether it's time and attention, um, a foot rub, or going out to dinner, there's those those things are absolutely necessary, and they can feel transactional if you're doing them for the wrong reasons. But they should be transcendent because you're doing them for the right reasons. But you still need to do them.
1: Actually, that's an interesting. That'd be a good place to leave off because. Sure. Is, is but no but to to, to uh, highlight what your point is and so that we can return there maybe the next time and that is that the same action can either be exactly either selfish or selfless and so it's not the action it's the motivation behind it which will ultimately over time color it and that that's really what we're talking about which is really what's behind the surface you know not the material thing but the in a sense, this spiritual thing, the soul thing, which is behind the action, and I think that's that's a very um, you know central point. And we could maybe take use that as the starting point for the next session, you know, okay. our next episode or <laughs> of the continuing yep. saga. Yeah,
0: that sounds good. <laughs> yes, we, 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 okay. I, I was using the, the word end game leadership, leadership, end game leadership, because I like the idea of end ending the game. So it's a little right. double entendre, but it also has kind of a, a chess strategic element to it. The Marvel Cinematic Universe had a had a movie called Endgame, so people are kind of familiar with the word Endgame. And I always attach leadership. I want to include that with um, what I'm doing, not because leadership is underused, because it's overused, but the term leadership itself is something that's near and dear to my heart. It's what I've studied, so I thought Endgame leadership kind of had a nice ring to it. Um, and you know what, uh, we can continue to play with actually. These terms. That would
1: be also a good place that we could The next time we can speak about Endgame leadership. Why don't we do that?
0: Yeah. Yeah. How do we end it? it sounds great uh john i really appreciate our time together
1: yeah likewise okay cheers
0: yeah